0: Rib Van Winkle, by Washington Irving, a posthumous writing of Dietrich Knickerbocker. By Woden, God of Saxons, from whence comes Wednesday, that is Woden's day, truth is a thing that ever I will keep, until thy day in which I creep into my sepulchre. Cartwright. The following tale was found among the papers of the late Dietrich Knickerbocker, an old gentleman of New York, who was very curious in the Dutch history of the province and the manners of the descendants from its primitive settlers. His historical researches, however, did not lie so much among books as among men, for the former are lamentably scanty on his favorite topics. Whereas he found the old burghers, and still more their wives, rich in that legendary lore so invaluable to true history, Whenever, therefore, he happened upon a genuine Dutch family snugly shut up in its low-roofed farmhouse under a spreading sycamore, he looked upon it as a little clasped volume of black letter and studied it with the zeal of a bookworm. The result of all these searches was a history of the province during the reign of the Dutch governors, which he published some years since. There have been various opinions as to the literary character of his work and, to tell the truth, it is not a whit better than it should be. Its chief merit is its scrupulous accuracy, which indeed was a little questioned on its first appearance, but has since been completely established, and it is now admitted into all historical collections as a book of unquestionable authority. The old gentleman died shortly after the publication of his work, and now that he is dead and gone... It cannot do much harm to his memory to say that his time might have been better employed in weightier labours. He, however, was apt to ride his hobby his own way, and though it did now and then kick up the dust a little in the eyes of his neighbours, and grieve the spirit of some friends, for whom he felt the truest deference and affection, yet his errors and follies are remembered more in sorrow than in anger, and it begins to be suspected that he never intended to injure or offend. But, however his memory may be appreciated by critics, it is still held dear by many folks, whose good opinion is well worth having, particularly by certain biscuit bakers, who have gone so far as to imprint his likeness on their New Year cakes, and have thus given him a chance for immortality, almost equal to the being stamped on a Waterloo medal, or Queen Anne's farthing. Whoever has made a voyage up the Hudson must remember the Catskill Mountains. They are a dismembered branch of the great Appalachian family and are seen away to the west of the river, swelling up to a noble height and lording it over the surrounding country. Every change of season, every change of weather, indeed every hour of the day, produces some change in the magical hues and shapes of these mountains, and they are regarded by all the good wives far and near as perfect barometers. When the weather is fair and settled, they are clothed in blue and purple, and print their bold outlines on the clear evening sky. But sometimes, when the rest of the landscape is cloudless, they will gather a hood of gray vapors about their summits, which, in the last rays of the setting sun, will glow and light up like a crown of glory." At the foot of these fairy mountains, the voyager may have described the light smoke curling up from a village, whose shingle roofs gleam among the trees, just where the blue tints of the upland melt away into the fresh green of the nearer landscape. It is a little village of great antiquity, having been founded by some of the Dutch colonists, in the early times of the province, just about the beginning of the government of the good Peter Stuyvesant. May he rest in peace and there were some of the houses of the original settlers standing within a few years, built of small yellow bricks bought from Holland, having latticed windows and gable fronts surmounted with rather cocks. In that same village, and in one of those very houses which, to tell the precise truth, was sadly time-worn and weather-beaten, there lived many years since, while the country was yet a province of Great Britain, a simple, good-natured fellow of the name of Reb Van Winkle. He was a descendant of the Van Winkles, who figured so gallantly in the chivalrous days of Peter Stuyvesant and accompanied him to the siege of Fort Christina. He inherited, however, but little of the martial character of his ancestors. I have observed that he was a simple, good-natured man. He was, moreover, a kind neighbor and an obedient, hen-packed husband. Indeed, to the latter circumstance might be owing that meekness of spirit which gained him such universal popularity. For those men are most apt to be obsequious and conciliating around who are under the discipline of truth at home. Their tempers, doubtless, are rendered pliant and malleable in the fiery furnace of domestic tribulation. And a curtain lecture is worth all the sermons in the world for teaching the virtues of patience and long-suffering. A termagant wife may, therefore, in some respects, be considered a tolerable blessing, and if so, Rep. Van Winkle was thrice blessed. Certain it is that he was a great favorite among all the good wives of the village, who, as usual, with the amiable sex, took his part in all family squabbles and never failed whenever they talked those matters over in their evening gossipings, to lay all the blame on Dame Van Winkle. The children of the village, too, would shout with joy whenever he approached. He assisted at their sports, made their playthings, taught them to fly kites and shoot marbles, and told them long stories of ghosts, witches, and Indian. Whenever he went dodging about the village, he was surrounded by a troop of them, hanging on his skirts, clambering on his back, and playing a thousand tricks on him with impunity, and not a dog would bark at him throughout the neighborhood. The great error in Rip's composition was an insuperable aversion to all kinds of profitable labor. It could not be from the want of assiduity or perseverance, for he would sit on a wet rock with a rod as long and heavy as a tartar's lance, and fish all day without a murmur even though he should not be encouraged by a single nibble. He would carry a fowling piece on his shoulder for hours together, rodging through woods and swamps and uphill and down dale to shoot a few squirrels or wild pigeons. He would never refuse to assist a neighbor even in the roughest toil, and was a foremost man at all country frolics for husking Indian corn or building stone fences. The women of the village, too, used to employ him to run their errands and to do such little odd jobs as their less obliging husbands would not do for them. In a word, Rip was ready to attend to anybody's business but his own. But as to doing family duty and keeping his farm in order, he found it impossible. In fact, he declared it was of no use to work on his farm. It was the most pestilent little piece of ground in the whole country. Everything about it went wrong, and would go wrong, in spite of him. His fences were continually falling to pieces. His cow would either go astray or get among the cabbages. Weeds were sure to grow quicker in his fields than anywhere else. The rain always made a point of setting in just as he had some outdoor work to do. So that his patrimonial estate had dwindled away under his management, acre by acre, until there was little more left than a mere patch of Indian corn and potatoes, yet it was the worst conditioned farm in the neighborhood. His children, too, were as ragged and wild as if they belonged to nobody. His son, Rep, an urchin begotten in his own likeness, promised to inherit the habits, the old clothes of his father. He was generally seen trooping like a colt at his mother's heels, equipped in a pair of his father's cast-off gallagascans, which he had much ado to hold up with one hand, as a fine lady does her train in bad weather. Rip Van Winkle, however, was one of those happy mortals, of foolish, well-oiled dispositions, who take the world easy, eat white bread or brown, whichever can be gone with least thought or trouble and would rather starve on a penny than work for a pound. If left to himself, he would have whistled life away in perfect contentment. But his wife kept continually dinning in his ears about his idleness, his carelessness, and the ruin he was bringing on his family. Morning, noon, and night, her tongue was incessantly going, and everything he said or did was sure to produce a torrent of household eloquence. "'Rip had but one way of replying to all lectures of a kind, "'and that, by frequent use, had grown into a habit. "'He shrugged his shoulders, shook his head, "'cast up his eyes, but said nothing. "'This, however, always provoked a fresh volley from his wife, "'so that he was fain to draw off his forces "'and take to the outside of the house. "'The only side which, in truth, belongs to a hand husband.' Rip's sole domestic adherent was his dog, Wolf, who was as much hand packed as his master. For Dame Van Winkle regarded them as companions in idleness, and even looked upon Wolf with an evil eye, as the case of his master's going so often astray. True it is, in all points of spirit befitting an honorable dog, he was as courageous an animal as ever scoured the woods. But what courage can withstand the ever-during and all-besetting terrors of a woman's tongue? The moment Wolf entered the house his crest fell. Tail drooped to the ground or curled between his legs. He sneaked about with a gallows air, casting many a sidelong glance at Dame Van Winkle, and at the least flourish of a broomstick or ladle, he would fly to the door with yelping precipitation. Times grew worse and worse with Rip Van Winkle as years of matrimony rolled on. A tart temper never mellows with age, and a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows keener with constant use. For a long while he used to console himself when driven from home by frequenting a kind of perpetual club of the sages, philosophers, and other idle personages of the village which held its sessions on a bench before a small inn, designated by a Rubicund portrait of his Majesty George the Third. Here they used to sit in the shade through a long, hazy summer's day, talking listlessly over village gossip, or telling endless sleepy stories about nothing. But it would have been worth any statement's money to have heard the profound discussions that sometimes took place, when by chance an old newspaper fell into their hands from some passing traveller, how solemnly they would listen to the contents, as drawled out by Derek Van Bummel, the schoolmaster, a dapper, learned little man who was not to be daunted by the most gigantic word in the dictionary, and how sagely they would deliberate upon public events some months after they had taken place. The opinions of this Junto were completely controlled by Nicholas Vetter, a patriarch of the village, and landlord of the inn, at the door of which he took his seat from morning till night, just moving sufficiently to avoid the sun and keep in the shade of a large tree, so that the neighbors could tell the hour by his movements as accurately as by a sundial. It is true he was rarely heard to speak, but smoked his pipe incessantly. His adherents, however, for every great man has his adherents, Perfectly understood him and knew how to gather his opinions. When anything that was read or related displeased him, he was observed to smoke his pipe vehemently and to send forth short, frequent, and angry puffs. But when pleased, he would inhale the smoke slowly and tranquilly and emit it in light and placid clouds, and sometimes, taking the pipe from his mouth and letting the frequent vapor curl about his nose, would gravely nod his head in token of perfect approbation. From even this stronghold the unlucky rip was at length routed by his termagant wife, who would suddenly break in upon the tranquillity of the assemblage and call the members all to naught. Nor was that august personage, Nicholas Vedder himself, sacred from the daring tongue of this terrible virago, who charged him outright with encouraging her husband in habits of idleness. Poor Rip was at last reduced almost to despair, and his only alternative to escape from the labor of the farm and clamor of his wife was to take gun in hand and stroll away into the woods. Here he would sometimes seat himself at the foot of a tree and share the contents of his wallet with Wolf, with whom he sympathized as a fellow sufferer in persecution. Poor Wolf, he would say. "'Thy mistress leads thee a dog's life of it. "'But never mind, my lad. "'Whilst I live, thou shalt never want a friend to stand by thee. "'Wolf would wag his tail, look wistfully in his master's face, "'and if dogs can feel pity, I verily believe "'he reciprocated the sentiment with all his heart. "'In a long ramble of the kind on a fine autumnal day, "'Rip had unconsciously scrambled to one of the highest parts of the Catskill Mountain. He was after his favorite sport of squirrel shooting and the still solitudes that echoed and re-echoed with the reports of his gun. Banting and fatigued, he threw himself late in the afternoon on a green knoll, covered with mountain herbage, that crowned the brow of a precipice. From an opening between the trees, he could overlook all the lower country for many a mile of rich woodland he saw at a distance the lordly Hudson, far, far below him, moving on its silent but majestic course with the reflection of a purple cloud or the sail of a lagging bark here and there sleeping on its glassy bosom and at last losing itself in the blue highlands. On the other side he looked down into a deep mountain glen, wild, lonely, and shagged, the bottom filled with fragments from the impending cliffs, and scarcely lighted by the reflected rays of the setting sun. For some time Rip lay musing on this scene. Evening was gradually advancing. The mountains began to throw their long blue shadows over the valleys. He saw that it would be dark long before he could reach the village, and he heaved a heavy sigh when he thought of encountering the terrors of Dame Van Winkle. As he was about to descend he heard a voice from the distance hollowing, "'Rip Van Winkle! Rip Van Winkle!' he looked round, but could see nothing but a crow winging its solitary flight across the mountain. He thought his fancy must have deceived him, and turned again to descend when he heard the same cry ring through the still evening air. "'Rip Van Winkle! Rip Van Winkle!' At the same time, Wolf bristled up his back, and, giving a low growl, skulked to his master's side, looking fearfully down into the glen. Rip now felt a vague apprehension stealing over them. He looked anxiously in the same direction and perceived a strange figure slowly toiling up the rocks and bending under the weight of something he carried on his back. He was surprised to see any human being in this lonely and unfrequented place, but supposing it to be someone of the neighborhood in need of his assistance, he hastened down to yield it. On nearer approach, he was still more surprised at the singularity of the stranger's appearance. He was a short, wear-built old fellow with thick bushy hair and a grizzled beard. His dress was of the antique Dutch fashion, a cloth jerkin strapped round the waist, several pair of breeches, the outer one of ample volume, decorated with rows of buttons down the sides and bunches at the knees. He bore on his shoulder a stout keg that seemed full of liquor, and made signs for Rip to approach and assist him with the load. Though rather shy and distrustful of this new acquaintance, Rip complied with his usual alacrity, and mutually relieving one another, they clambered up a narrow gully, apparently the dry bed of a mountain torrent. As they ascended, Rip every now and then heard big rolling peals, like distant thunder that seemed to issue out of a deep ravine, or rather cleft, between lofty rocks, toward which their rugged path conducted. He paused for an instant, but supposing it to be the muttering of one of those transient thunder showers, which often take place in mountain heights, he proceeded. Passing through the ravine, they came to a hollow, like a small amphitheater. Surrounded by perpendicular precipices, over the brinks of which impending trees shot their branches, so that you only caught glimpses of the azure sky and the bright evening cloud. During the whole time Rip and his companion had labored on in silence, for though the former marveled greatly what could be the object of carrying the keg of liquor up this wild mountain, yet there was something strange and incomprehensible about the unknown that inspired awe and checked familiarity. On entering the amphitheater, new objects of wonder presented themselves. On a level spot in the center was a company of odd-looking personages playing at nine pins. They were dressed in a quaint outlandish fashion. Some wore short doublets, others jerkins, with long knives in their belts, and most of them had enormous bridges of similar style with that of the guides. Their visages too were peculiar. One had a large beard, broad face, and small piggish eyes. The face of another seemed to consist entirely of nose and was surmounted by a white sugar-loaf hat set off with a little red cock's tail. They all had beards of various shapes and colors. There was one who seemed to be the commander. He was a stout old gentleman with a weather-beaten countenance. He wore a laced doublet, broad belt and hanger, "'high-crowned hat and feather, "'red stockings and high-heeled shoes "'with roses in them. "'The whole group reminded Rip "'of the figures in an old Flemish painting, "'in the parlour of Dominic van Scheck, "'the village parson, "'and which had been brought over from Holland "'at the time of the settlement. "'What seemed particularly odd to Rip was "'that though those folk were evidently amusing themselves, "'yet they maintained the gravest faces.' the most mysterious silence, and were, withal, the most melancholy party of pleasure he had ever witnessed. Nothing interrupted the stillness of the scene but the noise of the balls, which, whenever they were rolled, echoed along the mountains like rumbling peals of thunder. As Rip and his companion approached them, they suddenly desisted from their play and stared at him with such fixed statue-like gaze and such strange, uncouth, lackluster countenances that his heart turned within him and his knees smote together. His companion now emptied the contents of the keg into large flagons and made signs for him to wait upon the company. He obeyed with fear and trembling. They quaffed the liquor in profound silence and then returned to their game. By degrees, ripsaw and apprehension subsided, He even ventured, when no eye was fixed upon him, to taste the beverage, which he had found had much of the flavor of excellent holland. He was naturally a thirsty soul and was soon tempted to repeat the draught. One taste provoked another, and he reiterated his visits to the flagon so often that at length his senses were overpowered, his eyes swam in his head, his head gradually declined, and he fell into a deep sleep. On waking, he found himself on the green knoll whence he had first seen the old man of the glen. He rubbed his eyes. It was a bright sunny morning. The birds were hopping and twittering among the bushes, and the eagle was wheeling aloft and breasting the pure mountain breeze. Surely, thought Rip, I have not slept here all night, he recalled the occurrences before he fell asleep. The strange man with a keg of liquor, the mountain ravine, the wild retreat among the rocks, the woe-begone party at nine pins, the flagon. Oh, that flagon, that wicked flagon, thought Rip. What excuse shall I make to Dame Van Winkle? He looked round for his gun, but in place of the clean, well-oiled fouling piece, he found an old firelock lying by him, the barrel encrusted with rust, the lock falling off, and the stock worm-eaten. He now suspected that the grave roisterers of the mountain had put a trick upon him, and having dozed him with liquor, had robbed him of his gun. Wolf, too, had disappeared, but he might have strayed away after a squirrel or partridge. He whistled after him and shouted his name, but all in vain. The echoes repeated his whistle and shout, but no dog was to be seen. He determined to revisit the scene of last evening's gamble, and, if he met with any of the party, to demand his dog and gun. As he rose to walk, he found himself stiff in the joints and wanting in his usual activity. "'These mountain beds do not agree with me,' thought Rip. "'And if this frolic should lay me up with a fit of the rheumatism,' "'I shall have a blessed time with Dame Van Winkle.' "'With some difficulty he got down into the glen. "'He found the gully up which he and his companion "'had ascended the previous evening. "'But to his astonishment a mountain stream was now foaming down it, "'leaping from rock to rock and filling the glen with bubbling murmurs. "'He, however, made shift to scramble up its sides, "'working his toilsome way through thickets of birch, "'sassafras and witch hazel, "'and sometimes tripped up or entangled by the wild grapevines "'that twisted their coils or tendrils from tree to tree "'and spread a kind of network in his path. "'At length he reached to where the ravine had opened "'through the cliffs to the amphitheater, "'but no traces of such opening remained. "'The rocks presented a high impenetrable wall "'over which the torrent came tumbling in a sheet of feathery foam "'and fell into a broad, deep basin.' "'black from the shadows of the surrounding forest. "'Here then poor Rip was brought to a stand. "'He again called and whistled after his dog. "'He was only answered by the cawing of a flock of idle crows, "'sparting high in air about a dry tree "'that overhung a sunny precipice, "'and who, secure in their elevation, "'seemed to look down and scoff at the poor man's perplexities. "'What was to be done?' We'll continue with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, let me know. bigvoicej at gmail.com We've got a YouTube channel for your enjoyment. We've got a YouTube channel with selected stories from the podcast in video form. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this (laughs) program.